0: Welcome to Tabs 2 Cents, the show for average Joe investors where we talk finance and how to achieve success. Simon, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. Yeah, no worries. So I wanted to get you on. I've been following you on Twitter and you sent out some pretty informative tweets. And just from our discussions about the show, you've mentioned that you've been investing for 15 years, which is a lot longer than me. I've been doing about five years now. And you also say that you have a background in engineering. So I wonder if you could just explain how you started investing, what your process was like in the beginning and where that's brought you to now.
1: Yeah, for sure. Where I started investing in stocks primarily when I was fairly young, You know, probably not that different than a lot of other. People, very naive, just looking to make some money and didn't really know what I was doing. Hopefully, I've gotten a little bit wiser since then. I've, you know, made my fair share of mistakes, obviously, along the way, still trying to really learn a lot. The one kind of nice thing about investing is that you can really spend your whole life and, and continue learning till the end, right? So that's kind of the passion that kind of keeps me going is that learning never really stops and it's always evolving. So I, I started out by, you know, trying to pick stocks just like lots of other people out there, not really knowing you know what i was doing just kind of selecting what i thought would be good companies based on probably very oversimplified valuations p price to earnings multiples you know by cheap things Think that I have some kind of special knowledge. Generally, not the case. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you don't. We would fall into a lot of the same pitfalls that you know new investors fall into. You know, not really understanding the difference between investing and trading, for instance. So, trying to make a quick buck by trading in and out of all kinds of different stocks, not really understanding the risk that we're you know taking on if you're if you're doing that kind of thing. The good part about doing it when you're young is that you'd be doing it with like a few hundred bucks, right? So yeah, in the grand scheme of things, uh, it may seem like a big deal at the time, but all your your mistakes you make when you're just starting out, hopefully you'll make a lot of mistakes and hopefully you make them early and the goal being to kind of learn from them. So I was fortunate that I started out fairly young. It was always kind of an interest of mine since high school, I suppose. I grew up in a very small town in rural Canada and on a farm. So with a farm background, it's kind of a good example of what a bad business might might be obviously a small farm is a challenging business to really make a go these days, and it shows you, you know, the the challenges with like such a capital intensive business. So, I think that background actually helped me a lot to understand really some basic things like the value of hard work. And I know all those kind of classic tropes of growing up on a farm are true, and I really valued getting an education from there. So, always liked you know the, the math and, and sciences. So, engineering was a natural kind of fit, and I got a degree in chemical engineering, moved out to Ontario for work, and I I'm still out here, met my wife out here, still working in the same field but investing's always been a kind of a side hobby of mine. I like to think that I've really kind of matured in, in terms of how I look at investing. So gotten away from the quick kind of trading speculation side of things and, and actually buckle down a little bit more and try to think about more long-term. And then one of the things that got me into writing this uh, sub stack and going on Twitter is really about learning from other people, but then also like writing down my ideas. Like one of the great things about having like a journal or something else, like a blog or something like that, is that it forces you to really write down your ideas and if you want to treat them as like a thesis or a pitch, know, for an idea, then it forces you to have to explain it, right? So if you have to explain something and teach it to someone else, let's say, you need to be sure that you have some idea about what you're talking about. And if you, all you have to do is click, you know, a buy button about your idea that's in your head and you haven't really written it out, you're likely to not necessarily have a really good understanding of what you're buying. And, and if you don't have a good understanding of what you're buying, then you're very likely to not be able to decide to hold on to it when you should. And maybe you sell when you shouldn't kind of thing, right? So that's kind of the background in terms of how I got to where I am. We could talk a little bit more about like my investing philosophy if you'd like after, but that's kind of the context for how I started. And hopefully I've evolved and like over the next, let's say 50 years, if I can make it that long, then uh, (laughs) I'll I'll keep evolving. That's really the long-term goal is to not stay still in terms of how I think or how I look at things, right? So... I think that helps with keeping me going with investing is it's it's not something that's written in stone.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that for one thing, there's a lot to be said about having a blog and I'm in the same boat. One of the great things about the internet, and this has happened to me a couple of times already, if you post an article, people will read it and there's always somebody who's going to find something with your article that could be wrong. Yeah. And I'm completely open to that. I would like to hear those criticisms. It's almost like you use it as a peer review when you post it out there because you know that if you make a mistake, people are going to point that out. That's just the way the internet is. Yeah, But yeah, I, <laughs> I love that. Like I want that. But it is that's, great for that, for sure, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. for me, the criticisms are in some ways kind of like in a golden egg of the internet because people, you can learn from those, but also I think that you make a good point investing when you're young and that you don't have that much money. But also I think if you're older with lots of money, it's a good idea to use small amounts of real money. Yeah, because I know for me, like I didn't really learn any lessons with the paper account. You know, no, it's, it's not. It's not yeah. the same. So people are asking. Me there. It,
1: yeah, people. Do, I don't know about you, but people sometimes do kind of ask me for like, hey, how do I get started and things like that. And here I've been doing it for a little while. And to be honest, like. They answer is you got to actually do it there's a lot of good books out there and there's a lot of good like advice that you can go online to get there's also really a lot of bad advice too so kind <laughs> to comb through a lot of the stuff to get to the good stuff you, you got to have your own skin in the game right so the idea that like you can outsource conviction. One of the things that takes a long time to learn is that you shouldn't be buying something unless you have your own conviction. You have to have conviction in what you're buying. You can't just buy like a SPY, you know, S&P 500 or a NASDAQ index fund or an ETF, let's say, exchange-traded fund. You know, that's always the common advice to people is, oh, well, just go buy an index fund. And like, that advice is good, but it has to come with, hey, by the way, like, you need to be comfortable with this thing tanking by 50%, tomorrow because that is in the realm of possibilities. If you think about the world probabilistically, which you don't need to be an advanced, you know, math person to understand what that means exactly. But like, what you need to know is the reality is you don't have any control over what the stock market's going to feel like tomorrow. It's one thing to say in advance, "Oh yeah, I'd be comfortable holding through a crash," but unless you've lived through one, like, <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> your brain is not wired to think about that ahead of time. You have to have your own conviction that you understand what you own and you understand that it's a real possibility that some. Of this money could go away very quickly on paper like you know unless you sell then you you realize the loss but you know people tend to sell when they are bleak and just despair
0: yeah for sure and i think that you get some of those feelings even with smaller amounts one thing I wanted to ask you about is what were the lessons that you've learned that brought you to value and why do you think that you've yeah. held on to that style of investing? Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know that I fully held on to like the a, a value style. I, I think part of me, maybe it's like the rational engineer training that sees the intellectual appeal of traditional value mindset. It's a little more mathematical in terms of like here's you know a quantitative set of numbers that says like, by the way, this is like a, a real relatively good value. But the more I've evolved, I started out by being like, oh yeah, I need to buy cheap stocks. That's the way. And what's a cheap stock? Well, it must be something that's relatively low price to earnings because that's a metric that should tell you that you're buying a relatively you know, cheap stock compared to something that has a high price to earnings or a high price to sales or whatever metric you'd like to use. But the reality is like businesses aren't measured by one number. So I've kind of evolved. Uh, it's taken a long time. <laughs> I wish I've learned uh, this kind of fast but uh, such is the way, I guess, the stubborn mind like mine. So over time, I think I've evolved to be a little more fluid in how I think about valuation, like valuation being kind of how you value the current business, right? So if you think about value as like the current price you pay for all the future cash flows that could be sent back to you as as a shareholder in that business, then there's a lot more to consider. Most of the value is in the future. And a price to earnings ratio as a classic value measure is really only measuring something that, you know, typically it's a measure of last year's business performance right the last year's earnings and so you know if you you look at like cyclical industries their earnings are all over the map whereas there's other types of businesses that are a little bit more predictable and less reliant on things like oil prices or something like that right like a commodity price then not all businesses are created equal, I guess is what I'm getting to. And so thankfully, it's forced me to kind of reevaluate how I think about value. The traditional value metrics that have been very successful over the last, you know, 100 years in terms of applying those. But the market's kind of evolved, I believe, over the last little while. Like used to be businesses relied on having tangible assets that could be, you know, a railroad is worth this much because it costs this much to build the the tracks and and all the hard assets that go with it. And so that's where the value was. And, And these days, you know, with the internet and software companies and and other more capital light businesses, like the value is not in the kind of hard assets that show up on the balance sheet. Thankfully, I've kind of opened my mind to the fact that there could be value in other places. I do think that there is a price to be paid that's too much for, you know, a a flashy tech name that promises 300% growth for the next 20 years, which may or may not happen, right? So perhaps we've swung the pendulum too far. Who's to know? That's one of those things where you got to find really well you're comfortable with knowing and like that's the circle of competence you know buffett and all those old guys talk about like they kind of weren't too far off when they're talking about that stuff because if you understand technology then you'll probably have an edge in understanding that like yeah this technology company that's promising all these future growth rates maybe there's a pretty good chance they they do it someone like me who doesn't necessarily have a great understanding of these more complicated technology names i just kind of say no right it's not that I don't think there's money to be made there. It just won't be made by me. So I, I still have like a, a value tilt. Like I, I wouldn't say that I have any hard, like I can't pay over a price to earnings of 40. I just, I'm not going to put those types of constraints on myself, but I do feel more comfortable not paying up for promised future growth beyond a certain extent. So hopefully that makes sense. That was kind of a, a long-winded rant, but I would still consider myself a value investor because like, if you think about what value it really is in terms of the future cash, what you pay, now is one part of it and that's like the traditional value types of metrics you know you're you're paying on a cheap Relative multiple based on past performance. And you're looking and saying, well, the market maybe doesn't appreciate this business right now, mean reversion. So the business will probably come back to like a a normal multiple. So there's some multiple appreciation there and the business hopefully will continue to perform. So that's where you get your return from. And then the other part is there is going to be future growth. So you look for those businesses as well. Ideally, you find, you know, a great business that's got very sustainable moat. So like a competitive advantage. and one that lasts a long time. So if you look at like a Coke is kind of a classic example, right? Like they make sugar water and they've been doing it for a hundred years and they're able to charge a little bit more every year and they're able to sell a little bit more every year. Uh, so like, that's a great business. So if, if you can find something like that and pay a really cheap price, that's kind of like your dual engine is kind of kicking in and you that's where you make a lot of money, right? It's not the way to get rich quick, I guess, but... <laughs> I've been burned too many times trying to get rich quick, so I kind of give it up on those.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's interesting that you say, you know, stay within your circle of confidence because I really believe that. I think that if you're somebody who specializes in something, there's going to be an investment opportunity in the market. If you look enough, you can probably find something that fits your yeah. you know, your yeah, exactly. area of specialty. So that's interesting because I feel the same way and mention that to lots of people. I just say, well, what are you good at? And then what's your hobby? Is it mm-hmm. woodworking? What tools do you use? Is there a new one that just came out that you know perhaps is going to overtake something else? So, yeah, there's always an opportunity there. And I think that it's interesting that you've kind of gone that same way as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think a big part of investing is like over time, you got to know yourself and it takes a long time for people to kind of dig down into who they really are. It's not That's something like a 15-year-old, generally speaking,
0: doesn't really know who they are. They're just trying to be the popular kid or whatever, for, yeah. for better, for better it, or worse. <laughs> yeah, and it's and for sure. And, it, and it's not just you know your circle of confidence, but also how your psychology is going to handle certain things. Yeah. Maybe it's better if it's all automated and you don't see the money and you just don't look at it. And then when you retire in 30 years in an index fund, you've got an extra yeah. million dollars. That could yeah. be better for some people. Other people like to be more hands-on. Obviously, you and I are more do-it-yourself style investors. Yeah, but... I
1: tend to just have a passion. I think part of it is just trying to analyze and like figure out. Okay, like I get to look at. There's infinite number of businesses to really dig into. Especially as a personal investor, I don't have these mandates. You know, I'm not running a fund. And you know, I'm not, a lot of these professionals have all these constraints around what they can look at and, and uh, you know what they can offer their clients. And I don't have any of those constraints. I can go and look at like two hundred thousand dollar microcap and put as much money as i want into that there are advantages Uh, i do think like stocks for most people probably don't make any sense like Not, I mean, individual stocks, right? Like they should talk to like their financial advisor, obviously. But for the vast majority of people, they don't have the time or the passion to like dig into individual companies and analyze them and build conviction and do all these things. Like, so just that from that perspective, like individual stocks don't really make sense for for most individuals. That's just my opinion. So there's so many good resources and access to information is just so easy now that it's a great time to be someone who likes to
0: pick stocks. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I think that it takes a certain passion to really get the conviction. But if you're one of those people that love it, then there's no reason you can't pick individual stocks. It, it doesn't yeah. have to be indexed all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just talking about individual stocks, I've noticed that in your tweets, you like to talk about Facebook or Constellation Software. And you actually wrote a blog on serial acquirers, which is obviously Constellation Software's business model.
1: I think, so uh, talking about Facebook briefly, I, th- I think there's lots of other experts out there on Facebook. It's a small position for me, but the thesis behind Facebook for me is, you know, you've got this dominant player in this industry that's like crazy asset light, right? It's just Prince Cash. It's basically the world advertiser at this point. And the benefit is it's got this network that can be essentially it's global. So there's not really any limitations there. And it's run by this fanatic founder, Zuckerberg. Who's you know love him or hate him or whatever. He's a he's a robot, and he <laughs> he will treat Facebook and all the you know the other holdings. Instagram is an amazing business. It's his baby, right? So the chance of Facebook being like a zero in terms of like somehow going bankrupt or something is non-existent in my opinion now. Will competition come and, like, destroy it? Like, maybe, but, like, do you want to sign up for more social networks that replace what Facebook does? Like, I kind of doubt it. Like, people hate, hate on Facebook, but it's kind of like McDonald's, right? Like, people don't like to admit that they use McDonald's, but they've sold 18 billion hamburgers. So it's <laughs> it's hard to deny that a lot of people eat at McDonald's. And it's kind of hard to deny that a lot of people use Facebook. Anecdotally, people will say, oh, Facebook, that's, you know, no good. But then in the same breath, they'll go on about how great Instagram is. So, so. <laughs> They've got, they've got, you know, a bright future ahead of them. And when I bought into them, especially like even on traditional value metrics, it, it, it wasn't very expensive. It's like a market type multiple P of 25 or something, which maybe back in the day, that was a little bit pricey. But these days with, with these asset like companies, embedded, I can't see how that's like going to ruin me. It's probably not going to make me rich either, so it's one of those things where it checked a lot of the boxes in terms of you know had having a great management team, pretty good chance of future growth, lots of optionality. Like they're going after the metaverse stuff. I don't really have any insight into the metaverse thing, but to me, that's like a, a free option. If they didn't have any metaverse plans, I'd be happy with all the cash they print. So that that's the, kind of the thesis there. I haven't really written any, any detail on Facebook, but that's probably where I'd start is. Uh, you know, the management team and. And kind of the moat they have around the social networks. And they also have like, they have a WhatsApp, which they have not monetized at all. So if they figure out some kind of strategy there, or if they just use it as a funnel to other businesses that then make money, that's fine with me. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the thesis around Facebook. Constellation, I've written a little bit more about it. Like the thesis around Constellation software, essentially it's got this amazing capital allocator with the founder, uh, Mark Leonard, who looks like one of the singers from ZZ Top. <laughs> I like to put his picture in anything I write because it's just amazing. So it, this, this guy has been been doing it for the last 20 years he really understands like well one he understands how to do acquisitions he understands capital allocation so basically like capital allocation you can think of as uh, one of the main jobs of, of a ceo of a company so i like to say there's like four or five kind of levers a ceo pull to do things with the cash that the business produces after it makes its widget or whatever the business does operationally it has a profit so then the ceo says okay i have this money what do i need to do with it now and ideally redeploys it at high rates of return so that the investors can grow their future cash flows. So with Constellation, they basically started out by a really small company, had a little bit of private investment, then became listed publicly, but since then haven't diluted shareholders at all. So started out with a tiny amount of capital. It's a fairly small company started out with like three or four little vertical market software businesses. They've really just grown by buying more of the same types of businesses all over the world. And today there's something like a $40 billion market cap. They really don't need external funding. So their little businesses that they buy, they just kind of leave them alone for the most part. They don't get involved with telling them how to run their business. So they generally will buy like little small vertical market software businesses that serve a kind of a critical niche in the industry. And the reason why these are great little businesses is that they have super high margins. They're software businesses. They don't really require extra capital to get put into them. In most cases, they don't have a ton of organic growth. So the businesses themselves will just, the profits will just kind of go up with GDP nominally, but they'll just reinvest that cash into buying more of these little software businesses. And they keep the whole structure decentralized, meaning they don't have like corporate HR and they don't have corporate finance teams and stuff kind of putting their fingers and telling them how to do their business they just make the big capital decisions with the money so kind of like a holding company that way anyway CEO Mark uh, Leonard he's really developed a culture that has aligned all these managers of these smaller businesses to do what he did originally so like these days he's not really doing any of those you know little acquisitions of these four five ten million dollar businesses he, he has his managers do that he's kind of taught them how to do that they share kind of best practices amongst the different groups but even though it's grown to be this big thing the headquarter operations they don't really get involved in the day-to-day business of all these little groups so the whole strategy there is just to keep redeploying this money into these kind of boring software businesses they're so small for the most part they're starting to get into bigger ones but for a long time they just stuck to buying little small businesses with the cash that they generated and it's managed to get them like 100 times the original stock price or a little bit more at this point i don't know what it is now i wish i'd bought them earlier <laughs> That's the only thing. So like the bear case on Constellation has been, sorry, the bear case meaning like uh, what people are negatively kind of predicting about it is that they're going to run out of things to buy. As you can imagine, to keep up this growth rate, I don't know the exact numbers offhand, but they they managed to grow, like, let's call it cash flow, something like 25% or something like that a year. You know, the margins on the business have gotten a little bit better over time as well. But the bare thesis on it, bad things people are saying, is that they're getting so big that they're just kind of running out of target acquisitions. And so it certainly is a challenge to, you know, in the first few years, they'd have to buy like a handful of businesses, right? And they could find that no problem. These days, they have to deploy so much more capital. You know, I don't know how much they spent last year, but let's say it's a it's a billion dollars. It's a lot more difficult to do that compared to having to spend $10 million. That's the bear case. The reality is, like, they have a tremendous worldwide bank of potential targets to, to buy. So I don't really think that plays out just yet. You know, I'm not suggesting another 100-bagger from, from here. That would be kind of maybe outrageous to say, but I don't think that it just dwindles highly. And recently, another good thing about Mark Leonard, he, he's kind of come out and said that, you know, you know they, traditionally they had these uh, high hurdle rates for what they would consider in terms of acquisitions and, and hurdle rate, meaning like a potential return that they could get off their investment. And he's always kept it very high and it's served him well. At this point, because he's gotten so much cash coming in the door, he's actually said that like traditionally they would pay out a dividend if they had a lot of extra cash sitting around and know where to put it, which is fine. Like that's one of the other kind of capital levers a CEO can pull right. Is they can buy back stock. They can pay back dividends to shareholders dividends to shareholders is traditionally thought of as like the last resort because it's not really giving you a return that's going to be compounded, right? Like you're going to pay tax on it as the shareholder, assuming it's outside a protected kind of account. And then you're you're going to have to do the compounding yourself by buying something else. So in that way, usually the least preferred. That being said, that's what they would do if they had leftover cash. So he's actually been convinced that maybe that's not the right thing to do with the extra cash maybe the right thing to do is lower the hurdle rate a little bit and try to go after some bigger acquisitions. So just last year, I believe that's what they came out with guidance and saying, well, we're going to revisit the dividend policy and we're going to actually try to go after some slightly bigger acquisitions. And for those bigger ones, we're going to lower our hurdle rate so that we can find acquisition targets. So to some people, that might sound bad that he's lowering the hurdle rate kind of return target. But in reality, if he can put that cash to work and get a 15% return or even a 10% return, I have a lot more confidence in their ability to do that than I have in me finding something that gives a 10% return, right? So, <laughs> And it doesn't get taxed. I don't have to pay tax on that either versus the dividend. So anyway, that's an interesting kind of strategy. And only time will tell how that turns out. We'll see. But uh, I think there's still a fairly long runway for growth. It's an interesting one because I think I would never have bought Constellation like a few years ago, being like a traditional value investor. If you look at a lot of those metrics on Constellation, they would make, you know, a traditional value investor kind of just immediately say no. Because I've kind of opened my eyes to the fact that if you have like 20 years of growth at 20 percent, then a 50 or 60PE is not expensive <laughs> for instance they' just making up numbers but when I was you know a little bit younger I would have just said no way I don't even want to look at it yeah uh, for no. sure
0: and f- yeah from what I understand they acquire niche software markets yeah so like specific software in very small markets but as you say as those companies and software providers start to get snatched up then they need to move into bigger companies and there's not that many of them available that yeah. are still really good so I can understand why you lowered his hurdle rate, as you say, to, you know, I'm sure they can still find some good ones, but yeah. for the most part, it's a lot more competitive to acquire those bigger companies. So there is a bear case there for sure, but I, I like the business strategy. I also think it's interesting that both of those companies we brought up are both founder-led, because I yeah. think there's a lot to be said for a company that's founder-led. One of my stocks that I follow is Shopify, and they, they also have a founder-led company, which I think bodes well for them, because for them, as you say, with Zuckerberg, Facebook's is baby so yeah you know these guys are going to put in the work they're That's not just right. there for a paycheck
1: yeah i always uh, would prefer like a founder or someone with uh really like a lot of skin in the game of their own capital too right so even an outside yeah. manager they can be really good but it's harder to find an outside manager that really treats the company like a founder would and a lot of times these outside managers that they hire you know their incentives are just different you can try to incentivize them, but you can't change who they are. And a lot of times the incentives will be like, well, we'll, we'll incentivize them to get you know these, the stock price up or some kind of metric, which we think is aligned with shareholders' interests. And then we'll reward them with stock options. So we'll basically, here, here take some stock at this cheap price if you hit these targets. Which in theory, like sounds good, but what's even better is if say like, Hey, you have your own hard earned money that you <laughs> earned yourself. You put that in, you buy your own shares. If you think about that, think about how you would think about the stock if it was your own money versus if it was something that was kind of given to you based on performance. Like it shouldn't really make a difference, but it definitely, definitely does. So those small things really change how a management team on average is, is going is to think about the company. Now, I don't like, that's not a, the founder thing is not like something that I would just automatically say no, if it's not a founder, but it's a great, like positive thing. Generally with smaller businesses, there's, there's other factors that you have to think about. Like there's some small cap companies that, you know, that it's publicly listed and, and the CEO kind of controls it. They're the founder, but they just treat it like their piggy bank and they give themselves a big salary. So you got to kind of watch for different types of things uh with smaller businesses so that's a whole different conversation but it's interesting but i i haven't had as much time really like dig into the to micro cap kind of space but i think if i had more time i'd love to dig into that area a little bit more it's just it takes a little bit more time and effort
0: yeah for sure I agree. I think that there are pros and cons. Pa- you have to have the right founder. Yeah. But it's it's interesting, like with someone like Zuckerberg, like he doesn't need the money. Right. So he, he, he's doing it for a passion for his business. For whatever reason, he just likes building Facebook and getting it as big as he can. And yeah. he's, I mean, he's not going to stop working. That's just what he loves to do. Okay, he's he quit like, today he's and like 35 or something, right? Yeah. He, I mean, he'd never have to work another day in his life if he That's quit. Right. He, he,
1: so, he, he could have quit a long time ago.
0: Yeah. So I just find that interesting when there's guys that run a company that big that are the founders and yeah. Shopify is the same. And it's like those guys, they could quit any day, but they just keep on tracking because they love it. So yeah. yeah. So I got one more question for you and I think we yeah, can sure. wrap it up. You put out a tweet I saw, and it said that you had to adjust your portfolio for whatever reason. I think you said you, I'm not sure if it was market conditions or what, but you just decided to rebalance it. I think I know. Completely reset your portfolio and start from scratch. And I just wonder what brought you to that point and what did you change?
1: Yeah. So I believe that was like essentially the, the COVID kind of March 2020, I guess. Was it, yeah, crash or whatever, call it whatever you want. Around then, I had some businesses that I didn't know them well enough. I, I was simplifying things too much and I wasn't really focusing on like, business quality in terms of like does it have a durable moat does it have some kind of advantage and can it survive these kind of crisis situations and so i think during that it was a relatively short period like a few months i guess between kind of peak to trough i don't i don't know the exact timing but yeah like portfolio was down just like everyone else's i'm assuming at that that time and it was really good that fortunately i had enough time to really think about things and it forced me to reevaluate how i made decisions I think at that time I was still leaning too much to like the traditional oversimplification of like buying cheap things and you know, Oh, it's up 50%. Oh, I should probably sell to the scenario. Not really thinking long-term. And then when all this happened and really, it was pretty easy to see that the world was going to change. Not that we really understood for how long it was going to change or what the impact would really be, but it was, it was clear by March, you know, mid-March or something, that the economy was going to get hit. Things were going to happen. We didn't know if the world was going to end, but it was going to be a big deal, right? So luckily, I had actually sold like half of what I owned prior to that. So it was selling what I had left and then rethinking the whole portfolio. And actually having to do that is not great. But having gone through it, it's the right thing to do. I think an earlier me would have been like very stubborn about it and just said, no, I'm going to stick with it. Whereas like, luckily I was open-minded enough to say like, you know, I was wrong about how I was thinking about this and I need to start from scratch. And I'm sure that at some point, hopefully I don't have to just start from scratch, scratch going forward. But at the same time, that's what caused me to kind of look at it more of like an evolutionary. So like what I want to do is continue changing, but at the right pace. So and for the right reasons. Right. So looking at my thesis for what I hold, kind of reevaluating, asking, like, has the business changed constantly trying to look out like i should be asking like okay i own facebook in five years and 10 years is facebook still going to be a good thing to hold and if the answer is i don't think so then i should be saying like why do i hold it now even if there's like a few years left of good performance, potentially. The classic kind of, if you don't want to hold it for 10 years, don't hold it for 10 minutes. A lot of wisdom there. So hopefully going forward, I'll be a little bit more proactive about how I think about the future so that I'm making like slow changes over time as opposed to having to throw the whole thing out and rebuild it properly. So don't let a good crisis go to waste, I guess.
0: That's a good way to look at it because if you look back at the largest companies in S&P 500 or something like that 20 years ago, most of them aren't there anymore or they're certainly not the largest so you definitely need to be nimble at times but also it is important to be stubborn too certain times so it's tough to find that balance i think that's probably the hardest thing to do
1: yeah the, the thing for me is like when i go to buy something right now one of the things i ask is like do i think this company is going to be the one that actually survives the next 10 years because businesses now on average don't really last that long they The the business cycles are pretty quick and there's a lot of competition, you know, technology does disrupt. And so the focus on that quality, like durable moat, I think is more important than ever. The goal should be to not sell. For sure. One of the goals when you're buying is I need to be able to not sell this. And at the same time, you should be comfortable selling when you know that that's no longer true. It's tricky.
0: Well, that sounds good. I think if we got anything out of this, it's never sell (laughs) unless you should. never sell but do sell when you have to yeah yeah right exactly <laughs> but maybe sell sometime nobody said it was going to be easy yeah that's right okay well thanks a lot for coming on I always like to end where people can follow you what's your website
1: yeah for sure so um, people can uh, follow me on twitter it's probably a really good spot to find me Grading uh, v Grading uh, value is my kind of tag I started out with just being anonymous Yeah. but yeah you can find me on twitter there my sub stack where I, I write all kinds of silly stuff and hopefully, people enjoy it. It's called a margin of safety, which is a, a really bad pun for margin of safety. So, okay, well, thanks, thanks for coming Thanks on, again, Joe. It. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So, do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.